So as we continue in our series through Jesus' most famous sermon, his kickoff to his ministry, his most concise and comprehensive explanation of what it looks like to live out the kingdom here on earth, we've come to the fifth beatitude of Jesus, the fifth saying. It's packaged in the middle of a poem of eight of these, and it's the first to now overtly describe for us something that's blessed that we express outwardly, like very intentionally, something that's seen, something that we can actually do. It's not just a posture. It is a posture. It's an attitude, but it's also something we do outwardly. So you remember the, the attitudes are, you can see them in two sets of four. It's, it's written poetically. And the first four are about us emptying ourselves of the way of the world, the way that's normal in the world. Not, it, I'm not saying condemnable because it's just too normal. It's too normal. It's something we're used to. The normal way of being a human is challenged by the kingdom way. There's nothing attractive about what Jesus is calling attractive. There's nothing attractive about what he's calling blessed what he's calling fortunate, what he's calling privileged in these, in these first four, especially the first three. He's saying we are fortunate, we are privileged, we are blessed when we are needy, when we're sad, when we are dependent on someone else. That, that's the exact opposite of what the world calls blessed, isn't it? Do you see? I, I just want to highlight and orient you to this extreme difference that Jesus is putting forth. In the world, we're told we're blessed, we're fortunate, we're literally privileged if we're without need, when we can avoid sadness, when we have complete control over our own lives. And so it's the opposite. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount to his disciples and the crowd that there is gathered around him. He launches his ministry by saying, you need to reorient yourself completely according to some otherworldly standard, some transcendent, some mysterious standard. It's called the kingdom. It's different. It's dramatically different. We should not sit here. I should not stand here preaching this as if I have attained it. It's that dramatic. So the next three weeks, the Beatitudes are now about what's right. He says if we adopt these, this poor in spirit, this mourning, this meek, when we find ourselves there, we're going to be emptied of the world and we're going to be hungry and thirsty. But he's saying not for the world anymore, but for what's right. So the next three weeks are a pretty good synopsis of what's right. And he starts with this, Matthew 5, 7, blessed, privileged, Fortunate are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. At, at first, this might sound to our modern ears as finally something that sounds a little bit attractive, at least a little bit. Being merciful, that sounds like a good quality to have, admirable maybe. But keep in mind that back then in particular, it would not have been. Mercy was not seen as strong. Mercy was seen as weak through the whole culture, especially the Roman Empire. Right? It was peace through strength, not through mercy. That's 
what that that was the aquarium they swam in. That's what they believed. So this again would not have been that attractive. It would not have been seen as strong. It would have been seen as weak. The only ones typically that offer mercy are those who are too powerless to do otherwise. So it stays in that place. And if we really think about it, it's not all that different today. We really start engaging with this and look for the places where we might have opportunity to grant mercy where it's undeserved. It feels weak. I remembered, this is crazy, I remember this. I was a young man in my 20s in Houston. I was at like Ace Hardware or something and we had a long line and I'm standing waiting and I'm looking at the magazines or something and the people in front of me move up and this big man comes in and just, I guess I put too much gap there. He just moves in front of me. I figured he made a mistake. I said, oh, sir, I'm, I'm in line. Turns around and says, didn't look like it to me and turns back on me. Okay. It felt, now if I'm going to let this go, to let this go feels weak. Even wrong. Like maybe even irresponsible of me. Enabling of improper behavior, doesn't it? See, it's, it's not that different today. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had a sister come in and tell me this story of how her sibling stole her inheritance from her parents by going to their mom and getting her to sign something that she didn't know what she was doing. It was literally the Jacob and Esau story, like if you know that story. It was that. And I'm sitting there, she's asking kind of for what to do, and I'm telling you, it didn't feel, I mean, as a Christian, it doesn't feel wrong for her to fight for this injustice against her, to fight for what is rightly hers, to fight for her parents' will in the inheritance. And I just humbly submit that in all circumstances, maybe it's not wrong. However, according to the kingdom, it is never wrong to consider mercy. I won't say in every instance it's wrong, but I will say in every instance it's right to consider mercy. Blessed are the merciful, he says, for they'll receive mercy. And perhaps the most, the more unlikely and undeserved it is, the more it looks like what God's done for me. It's challenging, isn't it? I can think of legions of situations right now where I would argue with Jesus here to be merciful is blessed and I would feel right. But the Bible's clear, not just here, but all through it. I did a survey of where, especially all of Matthew uses this word, where Jesus uses this word mercy. But I did a cursory view of all of scripture and with one voice, it's pretty clear. We have to grapple with this. Anyone who claims to be associated with God must be merciful. We, this must characterize us if we are going to say that we belong to God. It is proof positive that you do. And it's proof that you may not if you don't. This is the teaching of Scripture. I know it sounds harsh, and it does when you go through Scripture. This is one of his big deals. If you go through just Matthew, I found other places in here where he used it just to make this point that it is the people of God he's calling 
to be this way. If you turn to Matthew 9, Jesus was having this dinner party at Matthew's house. The author of this book, right? He used to be a tax collector. And he was having this dinner with what society would call just despicable people, tax collectors and sinners. These are the cheats and the immoral, okay? That's who he's hanging with. And these are not the people you want your kids hanging with. Okay, so the Pharisees see this and they approach the disciples. The Pharisees, the most devout, identified with God people at this time. That the, the, just ask them. They are the most identified with God. They claim they belong to God. And so they ask these disciples, why is your teacher, Jesus, hanging with these tax collectors, these sinners? And in verse 12, he says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the health you need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is our work, by the way. We need to go and figure out what this means. Because it's, it's a big deal. We need to know. He's quoting God in the Old Testament here. He says, go find out what this means. I desire mercy. That's the work. But the point I want to look at here is it's, those who claim to belong to God that he says this to. Flip over a few pages to Matthew 12. Jesus was going through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples and he picked some heads of grain. This was culturally appropriate. It's not stealing, but they picked some heads of grain because they were hungry and they're allowed to do that. But the Pharisees saw this and they have read the law in such a way that says that's work on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, you rest, you keep it holy. They are breaking the law. The people of God know the law and they're breaking the law. And Jesus, he cleverly rebukes them with their own law, but we won't get into that for another time. But then he exhorted them once again with this quote from God again. Matthew saw fit to have Jesus quote God here again. Verse seven, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned us Again, the point being that it's directed at the people of God who are not identifying themselves as gods. You do that by showing mercy. If you get mercy, you're not condemning anyone. Then go to the end of Matthew, Matthew 23. The intensity is kind of getting pumped up here. He's talking to the Pharisees again and the teachers of the law. And he literally calls them hypocrites. Why are they hypocrites? Verse 23 of chapter 23, he says, you give a tenth of everything you have to the temple, but in your heart, you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You see from that first of his ministry right here towards the end of his ministry, it just, he's saying this is a big deal. This is important. And the intensity just keeps going up. He says, you're blessed if you're merciful. And then he says, go find out what it means to be merciful. Then he says, if you knew, you should know what merciful means. And now he's saying, look, you're just hypocrites. You're following all these ticky-tack things. And you should do that, but not for the reason you are. You sure don't neglect it. Your tithing to the temple should be a act of your mercy. It just keeps getting more intense. 
Listen, if you don't care to be identified with God, then go on living with your rights. Because I had rights in that line. No one would have argued with me for standing up for my rights. That's normal. It's not kingdom. But it is normal. No one's going to stop you. They're your rights after all. But if we want to be God's, Jesus is not offering advice on how to get ahead in the world. I literally was behind in line if I let that go. Getting ahead, getting what's fair is one way to be blessed. It's one way. It's just not Jesus' way. It's this whole other economy. And I want you to think about this. Luke 6 is still Jesus, but Luke helps us with this a little more, define why this is so important to Jesus and what it means. Luke six thirty six. he says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, that's what he's saying. It's about if you're going to identify, this is your father and the, the apple's not supposed to fall, fall far from the tree. We are supposed to reflect God. And the church is for sure called to do this. We're supposed to be his ambassadors. And we can't be, not if we don't reflect who he is and who he is is merciful. And Luke goes on and maybe gives us just as good a definition as I can find of mercy by saying some different terms just as synonyms of what it means to be merciful. He goes on and says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. So let's just use that. To be merciful is to be non-judgmental. How you doing with that? To be merciful is to be non-condemning. How you doing? That's in the negative, but there's a positive too. To be merciful is to be forgiving. How's that going? And it's to be giving. How's that? Here's the deal. You can't do what I do and think about the people I love to give to. Love to give to my kids. I don't have to obey this as a command. That just comes naturally. The people you're going to have to not condemn are people worthy of condemning. The people you're going to need to not judge are those that are, have earned being judged. The people, you're not going to follow the commission to forgive someone who has not done you wrong. It has to be someone who has legit done you wrong for you to even need to do this. And giving, you can't give to someone you already have an obligation or duty to, like, like my kids, you know? I can't use that as my example of giving, you know? It's, it's not to someone who can give something back to me. You can even hardly call that giving. The more undeserving, the more like Christ, and the more like God. Our Father would be merciful to no one if we wait around for someone who's worthy. I know I wouldn't have his mercy. So how important is it, this identification? How important does Jesus make it? How important does the gospel, does the Bible make it? Well, let's just look at this beatitude the way it's written and just answer this question with a question. How important is it for us to be merciful, to reflect this attribute of God because of what he's done for us? Well, how important is it to you to receive mercy? 
Blessed are the merciful, for they are the ones that will be shown mercy. Now, just taking at face value, this beatitude explains that the most expensive thing you could ever do in your spiritual life, in your relationship with God, is to hold a wrong spirit in your heart towards someone else. Scary. It's scary. And it sounds contrary to the whole message of Scripture that we're saved by grace, doesn't it? It, it read the way it is. Let's just face this. It sounds like, okay, so I've got to be merciful enough in order to get God's mercy. That's, that seems like a proper interpretation of this. But we know through the whole weight of Scripture it's not true. We know through the work of Jesus himself. He didn't die because we can be good enough or ever will be, he died because we aren't. So how do we bridge this? There's a story in Matthew that helps bridge this. You have to listen with your heart, not like a lawyer, not like the teachers of the law. Matthew 18, I'm gonna read it to you. He's explaining the kingdom, this kingdom, this upside down lay, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents, the reason he chose this number is because that's like a lifetime of income. That's an unpayable debt. So since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That was standard procedure. He wasn't being mean. He was just standard. That's, That's when you have a debt, you can't pay. That's how you get out of it. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That never happened back then because that's weak. This guy chose to look weak for this guy he owes nothing to. But when the servant... Okay, so then the servant, sorry, they took him out. Yeah, but when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who he owed a few bucks to him, 100 denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Does this sound familiar? Be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Then Jesus' commentary, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So first thing, this is what the kingdom's like. And this king offered mercy before the debtor did anything to earn it. Okay, that, he didn't earn it. He didn't get enough, he didn't show enough mercy to earn this debt. He did nothing that qualified him for this. This was the king's good-hearted decision on his behalf. He took the hit in his reputation. And so when this man then goes out and starts beating up his brother, he didn't do anything wrong. By the way of the world, even today, if you somehow got forgiven of some debt you owe, that does not obligate you to owe. To, if somebody else has a debt to you, they still owe you. 
And no one would take issue with you if you still called it to account, right? I mean, you'd be grateful for this, but this is, this is, he didn't do anything wrong by the world standards, but he's just explaining what the kingdom is like. And the crime here is not that he didn't, not just that he didn't forgive a few bucks. It's because what he had been given by the king had not penetrated his heart. Do you see it? Unless you forgive your brother from your heart. It's a heart issue that's being dealt with in this beatitude. Not a behavior issue. It's a heart issue. It affects your behavior. The lesson here is so clear. Verse 33, this question, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? This is what the kingdom is like. The answer to that for Christians is yes. Every single time, yes. A glorious and grateful, and I can't wait to do what you've done for me, yes. And the more ridiculous it is and makes me look by the world standards, the more like you I'm going to look. Yes, yes, yes. I will have a bias towards mercy, not the other way. That's normal. That's understandable and defendable. Mercy is not it is not. It stands out. So when you forgive your brother from your heart, you show that God's grace has gone to where he intends it to go. Your heart. It changes everything. So all this at one level, back to the beatitude, sounds like works-based salvation. You've got to work at that. It seems like it might be in contradiction to the rest of the message, but... The reality is that Christians, kingdom citizens, people who've emptied themselves of the world's way, like the first Beatitudes describe, right? The poor in spirit, those at the end of their rope, the, the meek, the ones surrendering their wills to God, the ones that are sad, they're brokenhearted by how things are. And this makes perfect sense. The answer is yes. I'm supposed to show mercy if I receive mercy. I'll never show mercy enough to earn it. And I'm not talking about people who come into my office and these are legion that are just really working hard to forgive. or to That's the work of Christ. Nothing in your flesh motivates you to do that. When you're working at it, that's you surrendering to the Spirit and letting it kill your flesh and make you more like Christ. That's exactly what it looks like. And he'll get you there. And you'll be free. You'll be free of anger. Be free of bitterness. See, forgiving others... Mercy, being merciful is for you. It might affect them, it might not, but it's for you. The world's way binds us. There's a picture, I want to give you a picture of mercy. I, I, I have this book that I got in a estate sale. I would never, never otherwise have found it, but it's called High Wind at Noon. It's by a guy named Alan Knight Chalmers. This guy Chalmers was a mentor of sorts and a friend to Martin Luther King. Anyway, he wrote this book. He's a Christian. And he has this great story that says something that we need to deal with. When this Greek word for mercy, it's not, it is a, an attitude, it is a posture, but it implies act, action, stuff you can see. That's why I say it's an overt beatitude that gives us something that we can actually do. We gotta be it, but then we can do it. So it implies more than a merciful spirit it often includes repaying good for evil. 
Like, if it would just be doing good when they've done nothing, right? Even that would be tough, but it's not that. It's returning good for evil. And this guy wrote a story about, I guess he was some kind of famous engineer named Pierre Holm. And he had it all, then he lost it all. And then he and his wife and his young daughter settled in an agriculture town, small town. And the neighbor that he had had this dog that was pretty vicious. And so Pierre went to the neighbor and said, man, your dog's dangerous. Could you, you know, kind of keep it away? I've got my wife and daughter next door. We've just moved in. And, and this guy, like, gets all mad at him and indignant towards him. I don't know why you do that about your dog, but he's doing it. And one day, Pierre comes home, and that dog has his daughter's throat in his jaw. He runs. He pulls it off. It's too late. His daughter dies. The town, this little town, is livid. They are livid. The sheriff comes over, kills the dog, and then when it comes time to plant seed, they're all, it's a little agricultural community. No one will sell this neighbor seed. He could not beg, borrow, or overpay for seed. They just wouldn't do it. It was kind of this community's way of disfellowshipping this guy, I guess, letting him know. I'm sure this wasn't his first exhibition of how he was, right? This just put it over the top. It cost the community too much. And so no one had any sympathy for this guy except Pierre Holmes. He would lay awake at night, grieving his daughter, but concerned about the plight of his neighbor. And one night he decides to go out to his barn. He gets his last half bushel of seed, barley seed, I guess. And he goes over there and he plants seed in this guy's ground at night. And it was when it all sprouted that the story came out. The seed came up and part of Pierce Fields that was going to have that seed, that's empty. And his neighbors are green. That's ridiculous. Chalmers says that mercy requires more than a right spirit towards those who wrong us. It sometimes requires repaying good for evil if we're going to be identified with our Father. The way of the world's fairness, the way of Christ is mercy. We have a picture of it. Maybe it escapes us sometimes in practical application, but it's that image right there. The cross. How do we do it? How do we? When I, th- I hope I'm accurately painting a picture that to you feels almost impossible. Like, I hope God's bringing someone into your mind that is making this, there's just no way. There's just no way. Because if, a, if that's happening, you're close. How do we do it? We can't just will this kind of mercy into being. We can't just act it out, although that would be better than nothing. We can't just act it out when it hasn't penetrated our heart. How do we let it penetrate our heart? Two things that have helped me take ground. I'm no master of this, but two things that I've worked hard on that have helped me to take ground in offering mercy to people. And it's what I exercise when I find myself stuck and not able to. One comes from Peter, the disciple Peter, and one comes from the writer of Hebrews. It comes from Jesus, but Hebrews writes about it. 
The first one is we remember God's mercy for us. Right, I'm gonna zip through this for the sake of time, but here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter one. This is a great little section, but he talks about how his divine power has given us everything we need for mercy, everything we need for life and for godliness through our knowledge of him who's called us to his glory and his goodness. So he's given us these so that we can participate in the divine nature. So we're supposed to make every effort. That's those people sitting in my office going, I really want to forgive. I really want to let this go. We're supposed to make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and perseverance godliness, godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. And then he said this, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure as you go, right? They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Know Jesus all you want. Know everything about him in detail, fully. If you're not growing in mercy and godliness, brotherly kindness, that's mercy. If you're not growing in that, you're in a, that knowledge is ineffective. It's unproductive. It's not working. That's what I mean. I mean, it's not working. Now, why? Why would we not have this ever-increasing growth in our ability to be merciful? He says, if anyone does not have them, it's because he's nearsighted and blind. It's because he's forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. We develop mercy by dwelling on our own need for it and his deliverance of it. There's something about that. Imagine if that unmerciful servant in that parable remembered what that guy had forgiven him of. If he just remembered that, would it have affected the guy that was indebted to him and how he behaved? I want to suggest that every time you decide to exert your right, it's your right to be fair, to judge, to condemn, to not forgive, to not give, it's because you've forgotten. It's forgotten of, that you've been cleansed from your past sins. That's one skill. It's one exercise that helps develop this skill. The second one is finding yourself in everyone. I, I've made this a priority in my life God's given me a great platform to do it. And so I practice this. Anytime I meet anyone and they take off the mask and they share, I look for myself in them. I have never not been able to do so. The details are different, but that common ground that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God comes rising to the surface. And I see me. I've seen me in you when you've done that with me. I depend on you seeing you and me. Then all of a sudden, love your neighbor as yourself becomes not just giving, but self-serving. We love others the way we want to be loved. And so it's important to find ourselves in everyone. Hebrews suggests that Jesus had to learn this. He had to learn to be merciful. He wasn't born with it. Did you you know that? I get pushed back on this all the time, that when Jesus was born, he was born human, fully restricted. He didn't play the God card. 
If he could play the God card, then Hebrews is wrong when it says he was a man just like us, that he can sympathize with us in our weakness, that he has experienced every temptation just like us. Hebrews says that. If, if he was playing the God card, then why would the gospel say that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? How does God already perfected grow in wisdom? How does God already grow in favor with God. No, he was like us and he had to learn how to be merciful. And Hebrews says, Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. When we exercise that same thing that Jesus needed to do, it makes it pretty important. I probably need to do it if I want to become merciful. If he needed to, then I probably need to. I need to find myself in everyone I meet. Everyone I'm tempted to hate or judge or condemn in my personal life or on the TV screen, on the news. Whatever it is, that's your opportunity to exercise mercy like your father. I see it in the story of Pierre Holmes. I thought, it's a unique name, Pierre. But for this, that works perfect. Pierre, be a peer with everyone. Judgment, condemning, that requires you setting yourself above. The truth is we're all peers. That will help us develop this. And it's important. The merciful life isn't a life of fairness. But it's not a life of unfairness either. The Bible calls it a life of triumph. It's a life of triumph. Let me ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses. They're going to just stand up and move around the room. Just in case you need a touch today. Maybe you're struggling with this in your life. Maybe you need this. Maybe you haven't met this God that we're presuming is available to you. This merciful God. Maybe you've met some other God that's judgmental and condemning, that's not forgiving, that's not, if, if you've met that God, I want you to dismiss that God, fire your God, and take on ours, the one of the Bible, the one that's full of mercy, because the merciful life, it's not fair, but it's not unfair. It's not a life of unfairness, it's a life of triumph. James says it in 2.13, just as concisely, concisely as he can in his little book. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. I want you to imagine every way you can take that phrase as being true. It's true for you. God's mercy triumphs over judgment for you in the gospel. And it's true through you. That you being merciful will triumph. For them, yeah, but also for you. Mercy. It's the, the merciful life is the best possible life. You will never be, you know, we talk about people with a God complex, like they wish they were God, you know, and we say that scoffingly. You will never be more like God than when you deliver mercy as a matter of course in your life. So if you need that, if you need it for yourself or you need to grow in it in your expression of others, we want to help you. That's what we're trying to do. We hope you've received that from us in each other. If you're our guest, we invite you to receive this God as well through Jesus Christ. Let's stand and let's sing about this God's great mercy. If we can help you in any way, please come.